Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Wilson, you sent the game-winning email at the buzzer, avoiding a 4.55 meeting on everyone's calendar. How did you do it? I got a huge assist from Grammarly, an AI writing partner that helped me make my point. And it works everywhere I write. Summarizing a doc only took one click. When everyone uses Grammarly, everything just makes sense. Go to Grammarly.com slash podcast to download it for free. That's Grammarly.com slash podcast. Easier said, done. For tonight's ceremonial first pitch, we welcome to the field one of the best starting pitchers in the history of baseball. He was named Rookie of the Year in 1967, and two years later was the ace of the pitching staff for the 1969 world champion Miracle Mets. During his 20-year career, he compiled 311 wins, 3,640 strikeouts, 61 shutouts, and three Cy Young Awards. In 1992, he was inducted into the National Baseball Hall of Fame by the highest percentage ever recorded. Please welcome to the mound, the franchise, Tom Seaver. And it's hit hard to left center field. It's going to be a base hit. A base hit by Jimmy Qualls, and it breaks up the perfect game. One-two delivery. Breaking hit, struck him out. So we'll be going to the bottom of the tenth. Strikeout number six for Seaver. No runs, two hits, no errors, two left. In the middle of the tenth inning, the score is the New York Mets won, the Baltimore Orioles won. Here's the one-two pitch. Check him out. Seaver has 19 strikeouts. Tied the major league record. The game is over. Tom Seaver, the 2-2 pitch. Lucky him out. The foul tip. On a sharp curve, strikeout number 13 for Tom Seaver. As far as the fans go, I mean, I've given them a great number of thrills, um, and they've been equally returned. And the ovation I got the other night. Ralph, that's a question that's been asking me a lot, obviously, since I was traded back here. Uh, what my feelings would be when I'd come in, I really didn't know. You know, I mean, it, you knew it was going to be terrific, and the feeling was going to be terrific. and But you just, you don't know personally. I try to be a very disciplined pitcher and control my emotions on the mound and try not to let umpires' calls or errors or bad pitches or things upset me. But uh, uh, walking in from the bullpen and, and, and seeing, you know, back where we have, I have so many memories and so many beautiful memories, it was... It took me a couple innings to calm down. It was really, it was very touching, and, and uh, um, you know, I, it couldn't have turned out to be a better day. Thank God we ended up winning the game, but uh, it was a very emotional moment for me. I'm a very fortunate athlete. I loved what I did for a living, and a lot of people want, want to know what I would do to thank everybody. How are you going to say it? How are you going to put the top on it? And I came to a decision a long time ago that if my number was ever retired, there would be one way 
that I wanted to say thank you to everybody, everybody that's here on the field, everybody that's in the stands, everybody that's home watching on television. If you just allow me one moment, I'm going to say thank you in my own very special way. And if you know me, how much I love pitching, you'll know what it means to me. Commissioner, thank you very much. The other inductees, members that I can call, have, are my brothers now in a sense of the fraternity of the Hall of Fame and how proud I am to be here and be part of you. I, I, where do you start? Where can you possibly start to feel the emotion? Where can you possibly start to say the words that will express what has taken place in a man's life over a 20-year period and beyond? That's driven deep down the left field line toward the stage. First career walk-off home run. Second pitch he saw from Albert Abreu. And he ends a long day of baseball with a very satisfying win on a day that we honor the memory of Tom Seaver. It's another edition of the Talking Mets podcast here on this Friday, September the 4th, 2020. Of course, I'm your host, Mike Silva. You can check me out all the time at thetalkingmetspodcast.com. Send me a tweet at Mike Silva Media, and you get the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. If I'm not on one, let me know and send me a note at my personal email, Mike Silva at talkingmetspodcast.com. No G, Mike Silva at com. Well, I hope you enjoyed the intro tribute to the late Tom Seaver. The franchise uh, wasn't planning on doing a show about Tom Seaver this week. We had, you know, obviously with the ownership situation changing and things heating up and some news coming out, I really wanted to dive into that. But news changed, and uh, this is a tough one because coming into this podcast, the last thing I want to do is give you a vanilla generic Tom Seaver tribute because you could listen to that anywhere and there's probably a ton of them. And uh, how can I talk about a player that I didn't see? I never saw Tom Seaver pitch. I see the little clips here and there. I remember Tom Seaver trying to make a comeback as a young fan in 1987 with the 87 Mets and Barry Lyons, a uh, uh, backup catcher to Gary Carter, basically knocking him out with a six hits off of him in a game in, in Tidewater. So to me, it's hard, especially because so many of you in the audience probably not only saw him pitch, but were so connected to him. But with that said, I think I said to myself, you know, how can I figure this out and really, really do something different and think about it? So first, I got a couple of guests coming up. One, Greg Prince. I call him the Poet Laureate of Mets Baseball Faith and Fear and Flushing, he's going to join me. He's been following this team as a fan, and, and he's been blogging about this team for well over a decade, almost 15 years, and uh, you know, can't wait to hear what he has to say. And our buddy Rich Mancuso, who covers the Mets, you know, grew up a Mets fan in the Bronx, who better to talk about 
experiencing Seaver from a fan perspective in their childhood than those two guys. I don't want it just to be about the writers who covered it or the the arm's length or the, the corporate way of looking at it. When you see Howie Rose break down on the air, there's a video out there of Howie Rose after the Pete Alonso home run, the emotional home run that should be emotional because the Mets beat the Yankees and they're still very much in a, as fake as it is, pennant race, but uh, an emotional game because I, I think for guys of Howie's generation, uh, this was about, you know, tribute to Tom. Uh, the greatest player in Mets history, even though he pitched only once every five days, despite the fact that he left on bad terms and he came back and then left on bad terms again and the timing was never quite right when he left after 77 to reunion, to reunite it and have the reunion that he probably deserved. So how do I do that? And I look at it this way. The only thing I want to put out there for you guys, and it's a couple of things I want to put out there for you guys to think about. And maybe this is me talking from a, a tweener generation. I'm not in the analytics generation, and I'm not a baby boomer who grew up on the Mets in the 60s and 70s. My Mets teams, the, the teams that I really cut my teeth with are the 90s teams. But I listen, I was around for those late 80s teams, so I, I'm very familiar with what went on post-1986. I was young, and I didn't understand baseball in the same way I do today, of course, but I was there. Will there ever be, and you really have to ask this question and be honest with yourself, will there ever be a franchise like Tom Seaver again? And what do I mean by that? Is there ever going to be a relationship between a player, the team, and the fans like Tom Seaver had with that generation of Mets fans? Because he's their Mickey Mantle. Like you hear how people say, I grew up on Mickey Mantle and how they idolize Mickey Mantle, Yankees fans. And, and Derek Jeter. But Derek Jeter might even be the last of a dying breed of generational players. Because it, it, it can't be forced. You People force, the media forces things now like that. Like they've tried to force that with Aaron Judge. And to a certain degree, you tried to force it a little bit with David Wright. David Wright was a great Met. And he spent his whole career with the Mets. And he sacrificed. And he, he was compensated handsomely. But it wasn't the same level as Seaver. You can't say that's that generation's Seaver. Because it wasn't the same, and I'll tell you why. When you have people come up to you, and this has been going on for you know years. This isn't recent years. This is probably 15, 20 years as I've expanded my circle of people that I know and gone out in the world. And you talk to them, and, and um, you talk about the Mets. And they'll say, you know, I'm a, I root for the Yankees now. And I'm not a front runner." But I stopped rooting for the Mets in 1977. Not after 1986, not 1991. 1977, because once they traded Tom Seaver, I was done. And it was almost like the Mets became the anti-Yankees at that time. They weren't hippies. They were still very conservative, uh, you know, wholesome American guys that played on that team. Now, that was Seaver. Seaver was, was just as corporate as the next guy. He wasn't a hippie. But he wasn't the Yankees. It wasn't the 40s and 50s Yankees. It was a... You know, this is our team. It's not your father's team. It's our team. Yankees were your father's team, maybe, right? So when he was traded, it was like a piece of them got pulled away, and they didn't believe in anything after. And when you look at that, you can't see that happening today because it's about the team. It's about the organization. It's about assets. It's never quite about the players anymore. It's almost like, and I say this too, narratives are bad. If you hold on to a star player too long in this day and age, 
guess what? You're going to get criticized for it. And when you look at the haul that the Mets got for Seaver, by today's standards, it's not that bad. Well, how do you, you know, probably say, Mike, are you crazy? Well, Pat Zachary was rookie of the year and was competing and pitching well in the World Series for a, uh, a championship team. Steve Henderson and Dan Norman were young, early 20s outfielders with power and speed. Steve Henderson was at a high on base percentage guy. He would be loved as a minor leaguer by today's standards. And sure, Doug Flynn was a throw-in. He was a backup, but he was a backup at a gold glove level middle infielder on a championship team that you said, all right, you know, you'll, you'll plug him in uh, because you want to have, you know, something to bring back that could help the team now, you know, from a defensive or from a positional player uh, situation. Not a bad haul. And because the Reds were the big red machine and because they had all these stars, I could see uh, similar to what we've seen with the Astros and the Yankees. Well, you know, when the Mets acquired J.D. Davis, well, he's he's not, the Astros don't need him, not because he's not any good, but because there's no room for him because they're so talented. You've heard that. You know, my prospects are, are, are good, but the reason they're not on the big league roster is because I'm just too loaded. I mean, that you've heard those kind of things. So it's not, yes, but think about it. I'm talking like a rational-minded, disassociated observer to the situation. You say, well, Mike, you grew up a Mets fan. You're doing a Mets podcast. You're trying to bridge the gap between the fans and the team, and you're trying to do this, you know, how can you be so disassociated? I didn't grow up watching the guy. Now, I'm not suggesting that the trade is good. I'm not. What I'm saying is I'm trying to reframe the thought, and we'll bring, I'll ask that to, to, to Greg Prince. Who better to ask that question to? Because how else can I talk about how an observer would look at this whole thing? There's two things that I take away. One, the trade, mechanically, was what you would expect out of a free agent or a free agent to be or a guy that you can't afford anymore, what you could get back when the leverage is flying out the window. And as far as the relationship between the player and the fans and the team, the love, how he was considered the franchise, despite the fact that he pitched only once every five days, I can't see it happening ever again because I don't know if sports, nothing to do with the current climate, of course, I think for a while now, and, it, and and maybe it's the money, but receiver was a rich guy. I mean, he lived in Greenwich, Connecticut. He wasn't an approachable guy. He could be very arrogant. Ask anybody who's been around him, whether you're a writer or what have you. So there's not that much. I mean, the gap is different because it may seem different because the money gap was different, but it was a gap. It was a gap. Steven thought he was better than, than a lot of other people. And he was, he was right. I mean, I remember listening to him as a broadcaster. I mean, anybody other than Pedro Martinez that came on the mound, he was like, oh, look at that, a whip of above one. Well, guess what, Tom? It's not many people who don't have who have a whip below one when they're pitching, right? I mean, it was it's funny, and I'm not criticizing. I'm not trying to diminish anything because Tom Seaver is arguably the best right-handed pitcher of all time. I know some could say Clemens. You look up at the stats on Baseball Reference: top ten in in WAR, uh, top ten in strikeouts, top twenty in wins. You know, ERA plus right over there. I mean, they're all there. Um, you're not going to see 300 wins from a Mets starter probably ever again. Jeez, with the way the starters are this year, I'd like to see five innings. Forget about a win. Get me five innings. But I really wanted to take a step back because my reaction as somebody who Seaver is a story. He's not an experience. He's not Piazza to me. He's not right to me. He's not strawberry to me. He's not good to me. Is that I don't, I can't understand the relationship. Because I wasn't there, and I'm not criticizing it. What I'm saying is it's, it's special, and I admire it. And I'm, I'm, I guess I wish I could ever have that relationship with a player. 
I know it went bad at the end, which which stinks. But the closest thing I think as from a Mets fan perspective, from my generation, I'm 43 years old, is how Mike Piazza came over in a trade, the other end of the spectrum, coming over instead of subtracting, and breathed life in a franchise that I felt at that time was falling behind in the sports spectrum in New York. Not that the gap between them and the Yankees was the Yankees were coming off a a championship and we're about to have one of the most historic win seasons in the history of baseball before the Mariners eclipsed it. They were falling behind the Knicks. They were falling behind the NFL. They were falling behind. There was a gap. And Piazza coming in made them relevant again. And and, and in a way, it was some golden years of the Subway Series. Uh, It's a golden era, in my opinion, 1998 to 2001, 2002. It was a period that's special to me. Now, it's not Seaver level. And did I get a, you know, I was very sad when Mike played his last game in 2005 because I always felt there was some, you know, childhood experiences, just like people like Howie Rose are crying because with the passing of Seaver, a piece of your childhood is going away. But, you know, did I get a little emotional? Sure, you, you know, get a little bit melancholy and sad watching Piazza take his final at bat, blow kisses to the fans, walk off. But the uniform, you move on. It's about next year. Mets are looking to move forward. And maybe me, in my life experiences and, 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 and my learnings, I've learned to maybe disassociate getting too attached because sports in general is about short-term relationships. Really, it's always been. I mean, yeah, you had players stick around longer, but even guys like Carter and Hernandez, I mean, I remember their final games as Mets. They were you know, with the Mets five years, and out of those five years, they really were impactful for three. So it's a very short period of time. We, maybe it feels longer in the moment, but it's not. So that was my takeaway, how I wish I had that experience. I wish I felt that much about a player. I love the team, and I love doing this podcast. And sure, things are connected to my childhood, but I've never felt that. I've never felt that connection with a player. And I don't know if you'll ever see a Mets fan base get that connected again. Even those that, well, Seaver's generation, of course not. That's their guy. I don't think the right generation felt that way. I don't think the Piazza generation felt that way. I think the Carter Hernandez 80s Mets generation, I think it was always met with disappointment because the organization made it seem like it was a bad group. I think it's more nostalgic now. One thing, though, I can say is... Maybe it will change in the sense where, and this is a little glimmer of hope that you have to put as maybe, a big maybe. Because Steve Cohen sent out a tweet talking about, in his memory of Seaver, and he connected it to being a young fan watching the near-perfect game against the Cubs. And you'll hear a brief clip. I had a chance to interview Jimmy Qualls of the Cubs after the Johan Santana no-hitter eight years ago. So you'll hear a little bit of my conversation and I'll throw it in here today, trying to give you a smorgasbord of things to honor Tom Seaver and his career and his memory. But Steve Cohen, prospective Mets owner, threw out there how he was a fan in the stands, rooting for Seaver to get that perfect game. And you'll say to yourself, that was the most heartfelt tribute from an owner of the Mets that you've seen, probably maybe ever. Because the Wilpons haven't done that in 25 or 30 years. And as much as Nelson Doubleday was... Uh, a wealthy guy and probably responsible for any kind of spending that happened pre-Wilpon ownership. I, you never felt he was a baseball fan. He owned a baseball team. He was a, you know, he was a rich guy. And look, 
Steve Cohen's buying $150 million pieces of art. He's worth $14 billion. He's living in a fantasy world. Most of us, maybe there's a few of you that have kind of money in there, maybe a piece of that kind of money. There's not many billionaires out there. Maybe some of you are living that kind of life, and God bless. But we'll never understand that. It's got to disassociate you from you know, Section 303 or whatever, mezzanine at Shea Stadium or City Field, whatever. It's got to disassociate you a little bit because you're living in a different world. But if it hasn't, and it's not fake, and it didn't seem fake, maybe things are going to change more than just from a cash infusion. Maybe things are going to change in a way where we'll have a better connection to the team's past. And somebody who really gives, really gives a you-know-what about what goes on here, win, lose, or draw. And that's exciting. And maybe Tom Seaver's passing and the honorary night, a night where they beat the Yankees, the Mets, where Pete Alonzo, a guy who you hope might become a generational player for this team, wins the game. Maybe you saw the first glimpse of what can be. Because it's not just about cash infusion and being a better baseball team. It's about being a better organization, both inside the ballpark, outside the ballpark. And the real thing that's been an issue that's had fits and stops and starts is the connection with the fans. And maybe Steve Cohen gave you a little glimpse that things could be a little bit different, more than just the fact that he has a very flush pocketbook. All right, let's take a quick break. When we return, Rich Mancuso, our good friend, contributes to the show. He's over at New York Sports Day, Latino Sports. Also writes a little bit now for MetsmerizedOnline.com. Look, the business is tough. you got to have more than one gig when you're a writer out there. Grew up in the Bronx. Big Mets fan growing up before he started covering the team and covering baseball and boxing. Let's get the perspective, our first perspective, from Rich Mancuso right after this. Jay Horwitz ran the Mets' public relations for nearly four decades. What was his favorite group of players? The answer might remind you about the magic being back. My, my first season, 1980, I was a young kid coming from a small school in New Jersey, and Joe Torre really took me under his wing. Uh, on our first road trip to Montreal, he, uh, he um, bought me seven of the ugliest ties known to mankind, and he... he, he he told me what it was like to be in the major leagues. And, and in that group of guys in 1980, we're, you know, I'm still pretty close to them. Like, you know, Doug Flynn, who um, the second baseman, who signed, uh, uh, you know, used to sing country and western. And he, he, we sang the Loretta Lynn Band, and uh, we sang the Oak Ridge Boys. And he had a guy, a guy like, uh, you know, Joel Youngblood, who used to, uh, you know, go hunting with a bow and arrow. And Lee Mazzilli was on that team. Lee Mazzilli was Derek Jeter before Derek Jeter. I mean, he was a heartthrob, you know, a handsome guy from Brooklyn High School. And they kind of, you know, taught me what it was like to be in the majors. And we had, you know, Dyer Miller. I got a chance to get my friend Dyer. In those days, when you get with the towns like St. Louis and, and Chicago, this big training, we had cow milking contests. And Dyer was undefeated. He was, I remember, 4-0 and in cow milking contests. I was especially close to Dave Kingman. You know, Dave was... Uh, kind of a little bit honoring with the press, but for some reason all we hit it off and you know one even one summer he stayed at my house we didn't have a place to live so and then it all began to change in in 83 when when daryl came and keith came the next year uh, you know you know doc and ron darling and Dave. that's when we put together a good stretch uh, of winning from 1984 to 90 listen to this and more at www.talkingmetspodcast.com We're back, and joining me is Rich Mancuso, 
You guys know him at Ring786 on uh, Twitter. Latino Sports uh, over at New York Sports Day again. He's uh, back writing there, also at MetsmorizedOnline.com, and wrote a nice piece over at MMO regarding Tom Seaver. And uh, Rich, I never saw Tom Seaver pitch. Uh, all I can talk about is, and what we did talk about was, you know, will there ever really be another franchise, not just with the Mets and sports, a different time for athletes and teams and the connection that they have with the fans. But a guy like you, growing up in the Bronx, being a Mets fan, growing up, very rare. Obviously, your journalism career intertwined with Seaver's career at times. So, difficult day and, and probably sobering and, uh, you know, something that, you know, we don't want to talk about. But a good way to remember Tom Seaver, who was obviously very important to the Mets, Mets fans and the franchise. Yeah, it's sad. You know, we knew it was inevitable, as we know, it was gonna it was gonna occur, but not this soon. But you know, I just been mellow, very melancholy, and was really down uh, yesterday. You know, when Seaver, you you know, it's the day after we hear, and you get you give all the tributes and the memorials about Tom Seaver, and you kind of lost like Howie Rose said, you lost a part of your childhood. You know, and then he was as a growing up as a Met fan, he was a part of my childhood, and I always anticipated, looked forward to Tom Seaver getting on the mound. Realize I was still what uh, I'm 63 years old, so you take that into account. I grew up watching one of the greatest pitchers of all time, and you put that in the class with Colfax and Nolan Ryan and all the others, Steve Carlton, whatever. And to to be witness to that and watching every time he took the mound, it was uh, an artist at work at his best. Great at his craft, if not great, outstanding. Someone you admired, you looked up to. And uh, I, as I wrote in my column, everyone wanted to be Tom Sieber on the block. And I was the only Mets fan on that block. These Yankee fans I was talking about, and that and, and they got to admire Tom Seaver. They got to you know we we grew up with baseball back then, and we grew up watching the games. If we couldn't go, we watched them on the black and white television sets. We watched the Mets on WWOR TV at the time, Channel Nine. We got to hear Bob Murphy, Lindsey Nelson, Ralph Kiner. Uh, uh, calling his uh, outings on the mound, describing how good the fastball was, describing what uh, uh, the charisma he had and, and his stamina. To, and you saw a guy who could throw a complete game, which you don't see no more. You, you saw a pitcher that uh, had a nasty fastball, Mike. You saw a, a pitcher that had a way to – command his pitches all the time. Uh, enough has been said. We, we know what he achieved. We know his achievement in Mets baseball history. But most of all, we know what he accomplished with Major League Baseball overall in his great career. You know, just the sad part, of course, is how he departed as a Mets the first time and how that was never forgotten and never will be. Something I'll never, you'll never forget. But he came back. And he always was a New York Met. And those were tears all the time on Tom Sieber. 
when he came back to then Shea Stadium and then City Field, we we saw that. We saw that emotion um, when he closed Shea Stadium with Mike Piazza and opened up City Field with Mike Piazza the following year. So uh, we lost a, a childhood hero, an icon, whatever you want to describe it. And I did personally because he was my favorite Met growing up. Rich, did you have a chance to interact with him professionally at any point in time? Uh, any interaction that you can share? I mean, obviously, that you know, growing up, following yeah. him, and then getting into the business, uh, it, it changes when you're in the business. What about that? Yeah, I never, never really got to talk to him. The only one time was bumping into him at City Field in a hallway by the elevator. And I told him how much of a fan I was of his. And then I also told him that story as I wrote that I I grew up as a Met fan in the Bronx. And he said, how, how did you uh, manage to get away with that? How did that work? <laughs> and he was, he, he smiled, he chuckled with that Tom Siebert chuckle that he always had. And I'll never forget that. It was the only time I was able to get him, meet him face to face because Later on in the business, if he was doing TV work and he might be in the press dining room areas, and I never really could get a chance to sit and talk to him because he's surrounded by everyone. I open the professional courtesy. I don't, I don't barge in on a conversation. Never got his autograph. Never got him to sign a ball as a fan, and uh, never did any of that. So that was the only time I met him face to face. And I'll tell you, it's like uh, it was my hero. It was my childhood hero, my my all-time favorite Met. And I like I couldn't, uh, I didn't know what to say. I almost froze. And I'm never starstruck, Mike. So, but that time I and, might and, have been. But that I'll never forget that story, though. You know, I'm from the Bronx. And that, Met and fan, that's interesting. You know, yeah, that's interesting, and that's my point. So I said in the open that. I don't think you'll ever see another franchise. And when I mean that, I don't mean the numbers or the player. You know, there's always going to be a franchise player. I mean, you could make the argument that Jacob deGrom, based on the era, based on the the situation with offense and ballparks, he's just as good as Tom Seavers with some advanced metrics. You know, Matt Harvey for yeah. a while first came up, performed at a similar level. But it's not the same. First, you have to have longevity. No. You have to pitch in the big games. Yeah, deGrom has pitched in some big games. Uh, but it's different, and that's the thing. When I talk to Mets fans, whether they're in the business like you now or still fans, what has always struck me, something that would never happen. I don't think I have it in me as a 40-something-year-old you know, that's partly in the business, partly still a fan, trying to bridge that gap. A lot of Mets fans have told me that after that trade in 1977, they stopped being Mets fans. Now, I can't understand that because I'm all about yeah. the laundry. This is about the team. And it shows you how special he was. Now, you have Mantle for the Yankees, and maybe you have Willis Reed for the Knicks and Joe Willie for the Jets. Uh, and I'm not suggesting that Mantle, you know, that's another generation of fans that were Mantle fans. Imagine if Mickey Mantle got traded in his prime. Uh, you may have had the same reaction from Yankees fans. Yeah. But I don't think you'll see that kind of connection between a team, fans, and player. Maybe it had to do with them being an expansion team. Certainly, look, this is a top 10 pitcher of all time. That's, that's reality. Maybe arguably the best right-handed pitcher. Roger Clemens' numbers are better, but we know, you know what that's all about uh, as well. 
I don't think we'll see this kind of situation. I don't care if a guy comes in and wins 300 games. I don't care. You know, even Mariano. You know, maybe Jeter, you can say they have that with the Yankees. But even so, I don't know. It just I think this is special and different, and it's not the way fandom is. Hearing you talk, I don't think we'll hear 40- or 50-year-old fans 20, 30 years from now talk about players, even if they have a long career. David Wright, for example, like I hear you talking about Tom Seaver. I I I think it's uh, a combination of changing of times. I think you had uh, you make up the good. These are good points, Mike, because I know I, I know many Mets fans my age that gave up on the Mets then, and they soon jumped back on the bandwagon. You know, I think that's just what you call a fan. You know, I, fans go where they want to go, and, and you have your loyal fan base, and then you don't, and. Uh, as much as I try again, as I always say, to be objective as I can, uh, I mean, I'm all Met. You know, I breed the Mets orange and blue. That's just me. Those fans then, I think it was a resentment then of the way Steve left town, not realizing the fact that uh, this was then business as well as it is more business now. And um, they, could, they, they could never get over that because their hero – as many of them thought he was, left town and possibly not understanding the full circumstances of why and how, and now later on understanding, yeah, well, that's why he left. And maybe they could make the comparison of how it was then as to now or even the contrast of how it was then till now when it came to the money structure of the game because this was a business decision and it was a parting of the ways, and it had nothing to do with the performance Tom Seaver gave as a New York Mets. And to go back to the term franchise player, well, what is there more to say as to what he did to not say that? He, he is and always will be the franchise. And uh, years later, we're starting to see the appreciation of that. Next year, the statue in front of City Field somewhere of Tom Seaver, which is long overdue. Um, and look, did Tom Seaver ever have any resentment against the Mets like Yogi Berra had done for years with the Yankees after what George Steinbrenner did to him? Seaver never stayed away. He never did. He always was right. there. Uh, when he uh, was asked to come to an event, he was always there. And hell, Mike, you saw it. I mean, for, for the longest the standing ovations and uh, the type of um, uh, acclaim he received, the type of, of uh, the fans took to him when he came back. And he never stayed away that very that long. And if he was still healthy enough, he would have been around City Field more the last couple of years. But unfortunately, right. his illness prevented that. But Always the franchise. I cannot see anyone not calling him the franchise more than David Wright and more than what we're seeing now from Jacob DeGrom or what we can be seeing from one of the other young Met players that could get into that. But And you're talking a whole different era of those days when Seaver pitched to what is now to tab someone as a franchise player. And he was a pitcher, which means he wasn't playing every day. Right? Sure. So, sure. Um, you know, he wasn't Mantle. Uh, you know, Mantle was in center field no, every day. Mantle was in. No, but, and it wasn't. But he was as impactful to this franchise in a crazy way 
as Mantle yeah. did. And you know, I know something, which, uh, and we'll, we'll, we'll wrap up on this. And it came to my mind. I saw the note that Steve Cohen perspective, I say perspective because until the ink is dry, you don't know if he's going to own the team. I think, I think there's a pretty high percentage shot that on this second round, he's going to get yeah. the deal done. Uh, Too bad, A-Rod, but, you didn't get it. <laughs> yeah, that's a whole, we could get into a whole other podcast about that. This is about Tom Seaver. It's a conspiracy. I, I read that this yeah. morning and I practically laughed. Yeah. Yeah, uh, A Rod, you know, he's he, he two three steps forward, two steps you know, two steps forward, yeah. three steps back. But um hearing Steve Cohen, now anytime a four a guy with fourteen billion dollars buys a team and tells me he's a fan, I gotta raise an eyebrow because you know the true Mets fan that sat in the mezzanine uh is not buying hundred fifty million dollar statues for their house, right? I mean when you no. start living in that world, when you start playing in that world you change. I think we all you know, know that. But if this is true, and if he wrote it and he meant it, and I think from – I could tell when someone – I think I can. My phony meter is pretty good, at least I think. When I read yeah. that quote about how he grew up and about the near-perfect no near game with Jimmy Qualls, and I see a prospective owner do that, that's a fan. Because it's not one of those what you would have gotten maybe from A-Rod – uh, who says he's a fan. I'm not saying he wasn't, but he's much more corporate or from the Harris group who looked at the Mets as an investment. You would have gotten something about, you know, Tom Seaver is an icon, blah, 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 you know, whatever that thing is. You got someone who remembers, just like I remember certain events. I remember where I was as a fan when Mike Piazza was acquired or, um, you know, what, you know, Terry Pendleton's home run or, you know, the things that are good or bad that you remember as a fan. You can see that Steve Cohen has that, and if that is true, that's going to be a real game changer. And I think you're going to see a lot of things both on and off the field change. And I'm not talking about personnel. I'm talking about the way the team is honored and viewed and the connection because the fans haven't had a connection with ownership in a long time. And I don't think we ever saw that kind of heartfelt, real response from the Wilpons. And I'm not no. here to bash the Wilpons. I'm not no, here to bash the Wilpons because that's not what I'm about. So to leave no, on that note, time will tell, think about know. what I said, and what are your thoughts about that? Well, give me give me that on the way out. I believe there's a lot of positives about it, and a lot of positives will come, but we have to, as I just said, time will tell. We have to see where it goes as far as if he's going to uh, commit and with all the money he brings and all the Mets love that he has in him. I mean, the Wilpons, of course uh, – New Yorkers and, a, and, and, you know, big Brooklyn Dodger fans. But I think I, I'm not going to fault them uh, as far as their passion and love for the Mets because uh, I believe that really uh, they could have sold this team a long time ago. They held on to it for any number of reasons. And I still believe that they love the Mets to the heart, but they just don't have the ways to show it. And I think fans have never seen the way they could show it. I think time will tell again with Steve Cohn is that fact with this love will carry on to the business of taking over this team as expected. Uh, uh, time will tell, Mike. It is a positive, as I said. Uh, you can have all the money in the world, but you got to do it the right way. You got to handle the right, right. way. Uh, you you got to right. know. You got to. It comes down to you can own whatever you want, and this is true of any business. But you have to run it the right way. And, and and I'm telling you, I know that from first year's experience now more than ever working for these websites now, the way this business is in that we're in. 
because, uh, you know, there's a lot of guys that run websites that don't know what the heck they're doing. And they'll drive a right and crazy like me. And I just went through that. I'm not going to go into it more. Uh, so if you run it the right way with all the money you have, then you're going to be successful. The Yankees, I believe, are a good model of that. Despite all the money they spend, besides being the evil empire as they supposedly are, they spend their money wisely. Why? Because they have the proper baseball personnel in place. And a major fault of the Mets over the, over the years has been that issue, not having proper personnel in place to run a baseball franchise. They don't know how to run a baseball organization. You need the right scouts. And that's another story because you don't know when you're going to see scouts again and doing their job effectively with analytics. You need the right scouts. You need the right front office personnel. Basically, you need people, personnel that know the game. They have to know the ins and outs of it. They have to be smart about it, and they have to be business-wise about it and spend the money the right way. And the Mets haven't been able to do that over the years, and that's been showing with the results on the field with the exception of, of 2015 and 16 when they were in the postseason under this current reign. But, um, so we have to see where Steve Cohn's money is going to go. And if he has the proper people under him, that's what you got to look for. Do you have the right people running the ship for the owner? That's essential. And we don't know yet because we're too, we're too early yet to tell that, but um, you have the money, you spend it right. You're going to have the results. You can check out Rich, Metsmerized Online. Great piece about Tom Seaver, New York Sports Day. Rich, enjoy the holiday weekend. You're always a good friend of the show. I appreciate a few minutes of your time in the middle of, I'm sure, you doing a billion things in, in a holiday weekend. Oh, but it's appropriate. I can't it's keep appropriate track. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Mike, I could tell you this. It, it, it's a lot of fun doing what I do. At my age, though, it takes a little toll. Uh, but you got to keep at it every day. So I tell any prospective young person, you know, anyone who wants to get in this business, you got to really hustle and you got to know what you're doing uh, because it's, it's a very difficult industry right now, like everything else. But you know what? This old man still got it. I think I, I, I'm a fighter. Like I say, with my love of boxing, I don't give up and I'll do it as long as my uh, health stays good. And thank God it is. And, I thank you again, Mike, uh, uh, and uh, let's try and enjoy the last four weeks of this baseball season and hope the Mets can get it, get in there in October, and uh, time will tell. And always, always great being on the air with you. Be well, my friend, and uh, we'll catch up. Thanks, Rich. Take care, Mike. Rich Mancuso, Metsmerized Online, New York Sports Day. He's uh like you said, tough business, trying to find a, a way to make a living and get his word out there, and he's a good guy to follow, at Ring786 on Twitter. We're not done. You're going to hear for more. Uh, you're going to hear an interview I did with uh, Jimmy Qualls, the man who broke up Seaver's no-hitter against former Chicago Cub. I had a chance to catch up with him a while back, right after the Johan Santana no-hitter, a couple of days after the Johan Santana no-hitter in June of 2012. You hear a quick clip. Right after this of my interview with Jimmy Qualls and his reaction to breaking up Seaver's near-perfect game all those years later. You're listening to the Talking Mets podcast. We'll be back with more right after this. We know Tom Seaver's Hall of Fame numbers on the field, but former teammate Skip Lockwood joined the Talking Mets podcast to share how Tom helped him during his career. I, I can't tell you how much importance uh, Tom Seaver uh, had on my career helping me to refine my skills and 
understand the science of pitching. Not that, that, that pitching is scientific, but to understand why you're getting players out, and what you're doing that's impacting the, the movement of the baseball, and pitching of the, the count situation, and who, who should be started off with a curveball, and who shouldn't, and why. And, uh, he, he was such an architect in a, in a baseball uniform. Um, he made a big difference in my career. Listen to this and more at www.talkingmetspodcast.com. Uh, and, and I was looking back, I mean, it was one of the biggest, I think it's the biggest crowd in Shea Stadium history. And looking at film, uh, and there's not a lot of it, but those were uh, pretty intense contests between you and the Cubs. That was a pretty raucous New York crowd. Um, I should say between you and the Mets, uh, you were on the Cubs. But uh, talk. you remember the crowd that night? You remember the atmosphere? It was, it was probably pretty, I know there was a big rivalry between the two clubs. Yes, I I remember after getting the base hit, I got to first base, you know, and it seemed like everybody stood up and booed me, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, that's 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 the way it should be, though, you know. Wasn't nothing real bad or anything, but uh, that's that's the way it should be. What about T? I mean, obviously you faced during that era. There was a lot of tough pitches you faced. Was Seaver the toughest? I mean, he had great stuff that night, obviously. Talk. Talk about that a little bit. That's, I mean, obviously that's got to be one of the better pitches you faced during your career. Yeah, you know, I faced him, and, and you know, uh, I wasn't with the Cubs that long, but I faced Gibson too. You know, I uh, uh, Gaylord Perry and uh, people like that. And, uh, uh, but he was a competitor. Boy, he, he was just like Gibson. You know, I mean, he he, uh, he was a competitor. You know, but uh, yeah, he was he was one of the tougher pitchers I faced. What about you guys in the dugout? Now you're getting into the ninth inning that night. Uh, you guys obviously know it's a perfect game. Was there a conscious effort? Hey, we got to get on base any way possible. You know, you're getting up there. What's what's going through your mind? What's the mindset in that situation? Because obviously, the game you want to win, but at that point, you just want to you want to break up history. Yeah, we, we, we kind of knew what was going on, and uh, just to get something started, you know. And uh, I, that that was my idea was just just get something started and and, uh, and it didn't got the base hit but it didn't go no farther than that <laughs> <laughs> for sure. And then I I read that Seaver actually uh, had a, a little exchange with you after that game in the outfield, huh? Oh no no it wasn't after that game it it, it was uh, it was later on in the season when, when when they come to Chicago we was jogging in the outfield. He just—he was just joshed at me a little bit, which is that's all right, you know. It was all fun. And you look back, you know, it was interesting. I was talking a couple of years ago to Oscar Gamble, who's had a cup of coffee on that team, and we were chatting about what happened. I mean, and they've—they've they've done documentaries on that Cubs team. I mean, that was supposed to be the Cubs year. That's probably the best Cubs team that we've seen, you know, in the last forty years. Yeah. Um, and one of the things they brought up was the fact that Leo DeRosa pushed you guys hard. You had a lot of day games. And you guys got a little tired, and the Mets just were like a buzzsaw. I know you were there a little bit, but you know you were there for you know a good part of what transpired. What, what, from your point of view, what happened there? Yeah, I was there nearly all year. I got sent down just for a month at the beginning of the season, but come back and see the rest of the year. And uh, when I run into the wall uh, later, and I forget when it was, Oscar Gamble wasn't even there yet. You 
know. And that's when he come up. And uh, I, I think the guys got tired at the end of the year. But, hell, you know, like Beckert and Sano, and they, they didn't want to come out of the ball games, And they had, we had two or three of the best utility guys, and Popovich and Oliver and, well, and myself. I said I was not the best, but they were. They could, they could have given them a little rest, you know, but it didn't, didn't happen. Right, absolutely. You know, and, and they didn't, you know, they didn't want to come out of the games. They wanted to play every day. Yeah, different mindset back then. And we have with us Jimmy Qualls, former Cubs uh, uh, outfielder, infielder. At, was on the 69 team, broke up uh, Tom Seaver's perfect game in uh, July of 1969. And when you look back, um, you know, obviously that was your one year in the big leagues. That was your um you know, your you know, Cubs chance really best chance to win the World Series. Um did you guys have did you guys underestimate the Mets? Did you do you feel that you knew they were a good ball club? You know, you have a fourteen game lead in August, you know, was it a point where maybe you you relaxed a little bit and you you were thinking too far ahead? Oh, we 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 didn't think they'd come on like they did, but they, they got they got on a roll and they didn't stop. You know, and we had a tough time winning ball games. And uh, I guess that's why they call them the Amazing Mets. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and you knew once you hit that ball against Seaver, you knew that thing was dropping in, right? You knew once you got, you know, as a hitter, when you get good wood, that uh, I got that one. Well, I, I thought it was, but you know, things happen. <laughs> 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 and I didn't hit it that hard. It wasn't a bloop single, but I didn't hit it that hard. I knew it had a chance, but I hit it real hard, and it went all the way to, well. You might have caught it in center field. The Talking Mets podcast is available on many outlets, but the most popular is Apple Podcast. Hi, I'm Mike Silva, the host of the Talking Mets podcast, and I encourage you to leave a review about the program on Apple. Just rate it one to five stars, hopefully a five because why wouldn't you? And then if you have time, leave a review. It helps the podcast continue to grow and encourages others to take a listen. You can also email me at MikeSilva at TalkingMetsPodcast.com. No G. TalkingMetsPodcast.com. Hope to hear from you soon, and enjoy the rest of the show. And it was Pete Alonzo who desperately needed it, delivering the walk-off blast in the raindrops to beat the Yankees at City Field tonight, 9-7. to Well, I said Tom Seaver was a renaissance man. He was a great pitcher. He was a great winemaker. And he is one hell of a script writer, too, evidently. He calls himself the unofficial institutional memory and unsponsored chronicler of the New York Mets. Uh, I think I could call him the poet laureate of the Mets, but who better to talk to on uh, a podcast dedicated to a Mets icon, the franchise? Uh, as I said throughout the show, maybe the kind of relationship between the fans and the team that uh, you may not see with the player. And uh, you just heard Howie Rose break up on the air will break down on the air after the Pete Alonzo home run, and I'm sure Greg Prince shed a tear as well, and he's joining me now. And, Greg, welcome to the program. Uh, kind of a surreal week, you know, a sad week. We knew uh, Tom wasn't doing well. Um, I'm sure you being a Mets fan and covering the team since 1962 in some capacity had a lot of emotions going through you over the last couple of days. So welcome to the program, and uh, talk a little bit about the last you know, 48 to 72 hours. Well, thanks for having me on, Mike. And yes, it has been a very strange week, unprecedented, really, in the annals of uh, certainly my Mets fandom, which does, in fact, go, go back to uh, pretty close to the beginning. 
Um, I wasn't expecting the news about Tom Sieber. Mm-hmm. You know, we knew, as you said, he wasn't doing well, but sometimes there are indications that uh, news is at hand. And here, not only were there no indications, uh, the family opted not to release news for a couple of days after his passing, which is their prerogative. But uh, certainly it was a gut punch. Uh, it doesn't matter that Tom Seaver hadn't pitched for anybody in more than 33 years, coming up on 34 years, I suppose. And it didn't matter that he hadn't worn a Mets uniform in, shall we say, anger since 1983, and that all those great years that for which he is memorialized happened ages ago. Uh a player like that is with you, uh, whether he was, as he was for me, your favorite player of uh, growing up and continuing on, or even if you never saw him pitch, even if you came along after, because, you know, there, there's no kidding with that nickname, the franchise. He was synonymous with Met success, and you couldn't go to City Field, and when you can go to City Field again, you won't be able to without being conscious of number 41, you know, certainly in a literal sense up in the, up the left field rafters, but just, you know, he, he was the man. There There is no second best Met. There's Tom Seaver and there's everybody else, and uh, this week, for all the sad reasons, uh, brought that home. Greg Prince, Faith and Fear and Flushing, uh, you guys, if you're a Mets fan and uh, you've been following the Mets or any kind of part of the blogosphere in the last you know, 15 years, you guys know who Greg is. And I was thinking about this because, look, I didn't see Seaver pitch. Uh, my earliest memory as a fan is Tom Seaver trying to make a comeback in 1987 and Barry Lyons, his backup catcher, top prospect in the Mets system, essentially knocking him out in a uh, inter-squad game down in the old Tidewater. I mean, some fans may not realize the, the Mets had a triple-A team called the Tidewater Tides. And uh, I, can't, I can't speak other than the numbers on the page, but what I do know in speaking to Mets fans like you, people that have been following the team in some capacity, but let's just talk about the fandom part, is that he was extremely special. And the reason I know he was that special, and it's not just lip service, is that there is a number of fans that grew up Mets fans that were anti-Yankees establishment, we'll say, back in the late 60s, early 70s, that left the Mets because of you know, the Midnight Massacre, the deal. And they say that to this day. I mean this is not uh, me doing some kind of puffery or marketing or something like that. They say that. I will not root for the Mets because of Tom Seaver. And I look at them sometimes and like, you got to get over it. That's like, well, 40 years ago, you know, whatever it was. Whatever the time I was speaking to them, and and that that tells me he was special, and I don't know if you'll ever see that kind of relationship, even with a Hall of Fame player and a fan base again. It's different, Greg, and I don't I don't know if Piazza's been the same, Wright's the same. I mean, I know they're not at the level in terms of Hall of Fame stature, although Piazza's a Hall of Famer. Um, it's just different. I don't think we'll see that again. I was wondering if you have thought of that. I think what we encountered as fans in 1977 was novel, much like the coronavirus is novel. It's something that, (laughs) although there had been raids of fan favorites before by the same management, it it bears noting, uh, this was from a whole other level of cravenness to trade 
your best player the best at his position, arguably, and not really much of an argument in all of baseball, over money. And really, as much as money, just attitude that they – Tom Seaver was his own man and spoke as he saw fit, and that did not go down well with M. Donald Grant, and negotiations were not easy. And he was gone, and the idea that you could take a guy who was known as the franchise, who had won three Cy Youngs, who had elevated the Mets more than any single player, even in the year that it was all about a team effort, 1969, and brought them to a world championship and led them to another pennant four years later and was still at the top of his game. And to just have him as if in some South American country disappeared, as they say, uh, it was stunning. And I could see where a fan would feel betrayed enough to say no more. Uh, That wasn't me. I was a Mets fan, and I, for reasons I've often thought about, <laughs> was, was willing to persevere. But, um, you know, I listen, if, if somebody trades your favorite player, it's something you take personally, and if you say, that's it, I'm no longer rooting for X because my guy is now on Y, you know, that's your prerogative. But is it the same On a mass scale, I don't see how it could be. I don't think there's anybody who has that kind of stature on the Mets. Certainly at this moment, and you you can always make a trade that will get people up in arms, no doubt about that. But for symbolism, if nothing else, and it certainly wasn't for nothing else, because as I said, he was still at the top of his game. He had made... The last two all-star teams, he had made all-star teams, what, nine out of ten years to that point. and was on his way to another one in 1977. So it was just, even though you knew it was coming because it had been in the papers really on and off for a year and it had heated up, it was still stunning and still unbelievable. And if that's what caused you to say, I do not want to support this team anymore, I can understand it. If whatever happened in the years to come did not lure you back. I guess it really uh, knocked you for a loop. And, you know, that that's your prerogative. But, uh, you know, no, I mean, listen, Mike Piazza went and played in another uniform, two more uniforms after he left the Mets. And I, I think everybody was, was okay. And David Wright never left. And, you know, we could talk about lots of guys who went and finished their careers elsewhere. You know, Tom Seaver came back and was let go again. Uh, all, all kinds of messiness in the in the Met Seaver relationship, but at the end of the day, he transcended that. And although there are plenty of images of him in other uniforms, and he accomplished some very important milestones in other uniforms, and I sort of feel good that the people who rooted for the Reds and the White Sox, maybe the Red Sox, share a little bit of that feeling of what it was like to have Tom Seaver on their team. Ultimately, he was ours, and it didn't matter once once Barry Lyons went six for six against him in a simulated game. Um, he was always going to be ours. He was always going to be number 41 of the Mets, and that, that lasted right up to literally his dying day, and I think it, it lasts an eternity.
I'm going to give you a little uh, hearsay here or, or heresy, whatever you want to call it. I'm you know botching the English language here, but that trade that was completed with Seaver by today's standards, by how it's looked, how analytics and how teams have uh, openly as players get expensive and hit free agency start to dangle them to other teams, the valuing of prospects. If you look, and I, there's no Baseball America to go back to then, there's no blogosphere, there's no top 30 list, so I, I can't go back and say this other than what I see in minor league numbers that may or may not be 100% accurate because who knows how the stat keeping was back then in uh, you know AAA, the International League, whatever. But Steve Henderson and Dan Norman were young outfielders with power and speed. Pat Zachary was Rookie of the Year, lefty. That was pitching for a championship-level team. Doug Flynn was his throw-in, and he was a gold glove, probably a, you know, a backup on a good team. But out of the four players, three were really solid prospects. Now, none of them ever lived up to the billing that you would have wanted trading someone of the Seaver's ilk. But from a mechanic standpoint, yes, they should have re-signed Seaver. But Seaver of Cincinnati, the stats don't lie was not the Seaver of the Mets, even though he pitched very well first couple of years. It wasn't the same. He was a, a notch below, still very good, a notch below. The Mets didn't get a bad deal, and some of the rumors were they were looking to trade him for Don Sutton, you know, one-to-one. But when you talk about a team that was in rebuild, and that's where that Mets team in 77 was heading, even though they had a decent 76, that's the kind of deal you make, uh, Greg. I mean, that might make people think, how, how can you defend it? I'm not defending it. I'm trying to reframe it a little bit. Okay. I think with total dispassion. I got you silent. I think I, I think I knocked you off your chair, which I said. No, actually, I was I was muting so I could clear my throat. I think with dispassion, you can say, "Hey, you got four young players for a player who may be peaking, who at that moment was going to bring back perhaps more than he would if you waited the old." better a year too soon than a year too late. I would counter that you probably could have made a better deal if you didn't feel compelled to rush him out the door on June 15th. Because with all due respect to those four guys that we got, and two of them, Henderson and Flynn, became two of my, uh, shall we say, second-tier favorites uh, through the years. I really love both of them. And I'm happy that I got to root for them, and I like Pat Zachary just fine. I'm sorry Dan Norman's switch-hitting experiment. The minors ever bore fruit in the majors, but they all, they're all nice guys. I think, you, you know, we, we have seen more of those sorts of deals over the years because teams don't want to deal free agency, don't want to pay the money. Um, if this had been part of some master plan, uh, what the kind of you know astro ball, if you will, putting putting aside the uh, the sign stealing, um, maybe you you can make a really good case that boy the, the Mets were really onto something there. They had to give a lot, but they got a lot back. But they didn't they didn't get a lot back. Uh, you know, Doug Flynn was a utility infielder for the big red machine, and he got a chance to play for a team whose middle infield was ready to be overhauled. And yes, Pat Zachary did win the Rookie of the Year award and never, except for maybe half a season, approached that level again when he was with the Mets. And Steve Henderson had a really good June to end of the season when he came over. 
and hit a very memorable home run a couple of three years later, which I will always be grateful for, one of my finest high school memories. But, you know, this this was not a great haul, and it was dressed up as such. I don't think the – what's the word I'm looking for here? Well, the, the, let's just say that the process wasn't as microscopic as it is today with prospects. So if you read in the paper that, hey, these guys on the Reds are supposed to be good, well, you believed it. And, you know, Steve Henderson, he just can't break into an outfield of George Foster, Cesar Geronimo, and Ken Griffey. You say, well, okay, well, we got the next best thing, and maybe it'll be better. I don't know that's what we got. I mean, they were pretty good players who once in a while did some really good things. And, yeah, Tom Seaver did not win – well, he won 20 games that year after having won seven for the Mets and 14 for the Reds. Uh, I would counter what you said about him not having good years after a while. He checked 1981. He finished second to Valenzuela in the Cy Young voting. And you could make an argument that he should have won that Cy Young. You make an argument about a lot of Cy Youngs. Uh, he helped them, led them to win a division title in 1979. Per- personally, in, in my heart of hearts, in 1977, I believe two things beyond the sorts of things you, you will hear a Mets fan of that era say. One, the Mets were going downhill no matter what, no matter who they had at that moment in 1977. And in my heart of hearts, as someone who revered Tom Seaver and loved Tom Seaver, I wanted Tom Seaver to pitch in another World Series. And I wanted Tom Seaver to pitch for a winning team. And as much as it was breaking my heart, I knew that he was going. So I wanted to see the Reds benefit, quite frankly. And I was never a Reds fan. I only rooted for them when he pitched for them. And I'm sorry that he didn't win more with the Reds. And, yeah, you again, you can make a dispassionate case that a, a 32-year-old superstar for four young players of varying potential is worth a shot, probably as a piece of a larger puzzle. I don't think the 1977 Mets had a larger puzzle on the table. I think it was M. Donald Grant wanting to get rid of Tom Seaver, get what you can for him. And then you you can't overlook what he meant, that he was the franchise. Again, I, I it's, it's a cliche because you've, you've heard him called that all your life, but it was true. And you, you can't lop that off the top and say, everybody come out to Shea and see Pat Zachary pitch and see Steve Henderson play left field and Doug Flynn play second or short. Um, and I can't, I can, again, go back to your previous point, I can't blame anybody for saying, you know what, here in 1977, I don't want to spend the, at the time, 450 for box seats, and I don't really want, want to rush back in 78 or 79 either. And, you know, it would take some time to re- repair the lowercase franchise. And, yeah, you know, Tom Seaver, no, did not did not win twenty games after nineteen seventy seven, um, but he won a lot of games when when that was kind of the barometer, and he had a long career. And the Mets certainly wanted him back twice, in uh, in eighty three and in eighty seven when they got a little desperate. So I can see the point. I've, I've grappled with it in my mind, but at the end of the day, we're not we're not sitting here the way we are talking about him in the year 2020, if it was just kind of a smart trade. I think that, you know, it's part of the legacy. Why we've missed Tom Seaver now is because of how much we missed Tom Seaver then. 
fair point, and you mentioned 83 and 87, and I guess the only cherry on top of 86 that you don't have an opportunity to have was that, you know, Seaver was in the dugout across the way. Uh, people forget that. Now, he wasn't pitching. I believe he was hurt down the stretch with the Red Sox. Didn't pitch poorly at all in uh, the American League at the end of his career. Uh, remember, he was nearing 40 at that point. Seaver as the fifth starter instead of, you know, a smorgasbord of Rick Anderson, Bruce Bereni, Rick Aguilera would have been a nice thing. Now, I know that I've read, you know, some people blame Frank Cashin. Some people blame Davey Johnson because he didn't want to clog up the rotation with Seaver and not take Doc. I've seen the Wilpons. It's very easy to make them a punching bag. Fred Wilpon, 1% minority owner, uh, get blamed. Uh, it would have been nice. The reunion was there, but it, it was – like you said, it was not the same. They never could get – after 77, it never could come together. Things just weren't right, and I don't know if you thought about that part of it too. Oh, God. Every, I won't say every day of my life, but I thought about it a lot. Um, you know, when the trade was made in December of 82 to bring him home, that that's what it was. It was home. This We, we got to – feel like a wrong was being undone and he'd come off of an injury riddle 1982, his first legitimately bad season in the major leagues. But if he had anything left, it was going to be a bonus aside from the fact of seeing Tom Seaver walk out to that mound in orange and blue in number 41. And he certainly had plenty left. Uh, the one loss record in 83 is deceptive. Uh, he was a good pitcher. He was a very good pitcher. Check, check baseball reference, drill down the numbers a little bit. You'll see he finished in the top 10 in a couple of categories. It wasn't the same as 1973, but he could still pitch at the age of 38. Letting him go, I think, was just a little bit of the a foreshadowing of the arrogance that would kind of bring down the Met dynasty in the making. I, I honestly believe Frank Cashin and his lieutenants were – so taken with their own minor leagues and their own prospects, and many of them for very good reason, as as we would see in the years ahead, uh, that they said, nobody's going to take our guy, Seaver. And Cashin kind of looked at Seaver as, as he put it, something for the fans as opposed to something for the customers. Like, well, we'll just humor humor you old guys uh, at the time I was an old guy of I think uh, 21 years old <laughs> so you know, we, we, you know we'll, we'll, we'll humor the fans who watch it TV at home with, and, but you'll see when we bring up the uh, the Daryl Strawberries and the Dwight Goodens you know we'll get we'll sell tickets to see a really good team and I you know, I think that to a certain degree that's fair because Tom Seaver was not quote the future at that point but did you want to see him if you were around then in another uniform after having just gotten him back? Absolutely not. And in some ways, I, I think that bothers me more than the trade in 1977 because it came without warning. It came for, an, even, even though I wouldn't, wouldn't give M. Donald Grant any kind of credit at all, at least it was for a reason, even if the reason was spite. <laughs> at least there was a trade and you got players back here. It was this god-awful dumb rule about teams getting picks from other teams had nothing to do with free agents going somewhere and Seaver's name was just left out there because Cashin figured who wants at, at that moment, I guess he was 39, who wants a 39-year-old pitcher who's an icon in our market? Well, Jerry Reinsdorf from the White Sox said we do and it all worked out very well for them. 
Now, because the Mets were indeed coming together uh, to an extent that I don't think any fan grasped between 1983 and 1984, it didn't hurt that much except aesthetically. We would have loved Tom Seaver to have been in a Mets uniform to win his 300th game. It was bizarre and ridiculous that he was wearing that White Sox horizontal stripe uniform and that he was pitching at Yankee Stadium, thank God, for not the Yankees, but, uh, you know, that it was for anybody else. We would have loved that. It would have meshed very well, I think, whether Dwight Gooden makes the team as a fifth starter, soon to be the first starter, out of spring training in 84 is up for unknowable debate. Sooner or later, Dwight Gooden is on that team, most likely. Uh, listen, Mike Therese was gone pretty soon. Craig Swan was gone pretty soon. Uh, Dick Tidrow, who was a reliever, is gone pretty soon. That's three spots that opened up pretty quickly. I don't think we would have waited very long for Gooden. If Seaver is there, no. I, don't, I, I, don't, I don't know what the, uh, the, the Seaver-Davy Johnson relationship would have been. I can't see how Davy Johnson, his first managerial job, could have completely dismissed the influence of Tom Seaver on a pitching staff and pitching every five days. I know Davy Johnson is more confident than, than most human beings, but I, I can't see how not having him around was, was a bonus. And, and yeah, just to, to finish the point, what you said about Bruce Perenni, Rick Anderson, Ed Lynch, Rick, Rick Aguilera, I think Aguilera is a notch above all those guys. Uh, you wouldn't have minded having Tom taking a couple of starts in September of 1985 and getting uh, you know the postseason started at Shea Stadium a year early, it didn't happen. It was sad. It was sad mostly for for many reasons, but but mostly because we thought we were done with that. We thought we were done with ownership and management that was that nearsighted because this wasn't end Donald Grant. Remember, you know you you brought the Wilpon name Doubleday and Wilpon were were heroes. <laughs> In the 1980s, right? You, they stayed out. They stayed out of the papers, which is like all you could ask for in the in the age of George Steinbrenner. And they let Frank Cashin build a winner, which is all any fan could ask for. So the fact that that these guys, among them, no, no matter who exactly was responsible, would let the franchise go again for nothing, uh, I, I think just stings. Maybe maybe it doesn't break your heart the way '77 does but it stings and it was unnecessary, but things worked out at least, you know, in the mid eighties for, for both sides. We'll wrap up on this point. Uh, so after all the information came out about Seaver passing, you know, Steve Cohen perspective owner of the Mets. And I say perspective because who the heck knows what's going to happen. They've already struck out once. I don't see him striking out a second time, but look, you want to say perspective owner sent out, uh, uh, I guess a tweet or you know something through an intermediary about remembering how he was in the park when Seaver's near perfect game against the Cubs and it wasn't your typical tribute that you get from a writer even if they covered the team or from a an owner or an ownership group that just wants to be corporate or political it seemed like that coming from a true fan now that's hard for me to wrap my head around because Steve Cohen is worth 14 billion dollars uh, he buys 150 million dollar pieces of art by all reports. And when you live in that kind of world that you and I could only dream of, or even if we had it, I don't know if we could handle that kind of thing. I know I can. Maybe you can, Greg. Um, I, I just sense. say, that, well, is he still like that? Is he still a fan like that? And, and, he, and if he is, it's a much better connection in just one tweet than you've seen from the Wilpon family. And I'm not here to bash them because I think that's unfair. 
in 30 years, and that gives you, I guess, some hope, and I guess that's where I would leave it with you uh, as we wrap up here. The future, especially with the fan connection with the team and the history, which has been eh, at times you've been part in those discussions. Maybe there's hope with the new owner uh, that is a fan, hopefully, of this team. It it was a breath of fresh air and a sad week. I mean, the Wilpons put out a statement. It was obviously written in committee and reviewed by a larger committee. And, you know, it hit all the notes that, quite frankly, anybody could have gone to Wikipedia and found. Uh, but it was, it was not one iota more than you would have expected, so it didn't really phase me one way or the other. But then, yeah, this guy comes along who wants to buy the team, and he's asked about it, and he volunteers the stuff about being at the Jimmy Qualls game and remembering what it was like to watch Tom Seaver. And this is how I talk. This is how you talk. This is how, how we as fans emote and feel. I don't just mean about feel about fever, but this is, you know, what we walk around thinking about and what we walk around being elevated by and get chills about. And Steve Cohn, for all that he has done to accumulate his fortune, whatever he's done for better or worse in the business world, is a Nets fan. And... That's That would be just nice to know that there's another Mets fan out there in the world where we're always you know happy to have more in our tribe. But to have this guy want to take the wheel of the team and give you the confidence that he will take this part of owning a team totally seriously, not just as one more box to check, not just one more item in the portfolio, not just as, you know, part and parcel to a real estate deal, that this is why he wants to own this team. Um, Again, we don't know that it's going to happen. I would suggest dotting every I, crossing every T about six times before uh, opening any bottles of champagne or anything else. But, you know, having that kind of devotion to a team at the the head of the ladder and thinking what that would mean that every time we begin to, to feel something about a player, about a moment of past or present, never mind future. Like, Hey, Steve's got this. Steve's got people to handle this. Steve takes this seriously. Uh, again, we, we could be setting ourselves up for a fall. It could turn out that Steve believes that, but just is, and has resources, but hey, it turns out he doesn't really know how to operate a team, and God, we miss the Wilfons. I don't really think that's going to happen, but you never know. But, um, yeah, it was, it was lovely to see. Um, you know, hundreds, probably thousands of people put out expressions of regret this week, and they were all, for the most part, heartfelt and personal. But one of them was from a guy who wants to buy the team, <laughs> and operate the team presumably within the parameters of, of caring about those things. So, yes, that, uh, that, that is a, a grace note for, for, to all the sadness of uh, the week Tom Seaver died. 
Well, I'm gonna let, I, I tell you, I implore you, add Poet Laureate of the Mets to your Twitter profile. That's what I call you, the Poet Laureate of the Mets. And uh, on all seriousness, you're a good friend. You do great work. Uh, I've known you for a long time, and um, I appreciate you coming on on a holiday week. And I know it's not easy talking about Seaver, you know, and it's like a piece of your childhood uh, passed away along with Tom. So be well, and there would be nobody else I'd like to share this podcast with. And uh, let's catch up again soon, my friend. Thank you very much, Mike. I appreciate it. Greg Prince, Faith and Fear and Flushing. You guys know him. I don't have to give you any other. If you check out Faith and Fear and Flushing, check out more about Tom Seaver and Greg's thoughts on a daily basis. So, anyway, let's take a quick break. When we return, we'll wrap up. You're listening to the Talking Mets podcast. We'll be back with more right after this. The Talking Mets podcast is available on many outlets, but the most popular is Apple Podcast. Hi, I'm Mike Silva, the host of the Talking Mets podcast, and I encourage you to leave a review about the program on Apple. Just rate it one to five stars, hopefully a five because why wouldn't you? And then if you have time, leave a review. It helps the podcast continue to grow and encourages others to take a listen. You can also email me at MikeSilva at TalkingMetsPodcast.com. No G. TalkingMetsPodcast.com. Hope to hear from you soon and enjoy the rest of the show. All right, final thoughts. Uh, Gotta love Greg Prince. Uh, Gives you kind of the most fair and balanced view that you're going to get out there from uh, the Mets fan base. He's kind of like my historian. Anytime you want to go back in history, I like to bring in Greg, and he's a good friend, and he's done... Uh, for for nothing, mind you, uh, contributions to the show from time to time, and I want to thank him again. There's not much more left to say. I, I hope I gave you guys something to think about, something to chew on. Again, I didn't watch Seaver. I didn't want to be a phony. I didn't want to sit here and just talk about analytics and platitudes. But I wanted to give you a couple things to think about. One, how I viewed the relationship between Seaver and the fans, and how I don't think that you'll see that again. And number two, you know, think about reframe. The Seaver narrative and how it happened there in 1977 by today's standards. And maybe it's not considered the Midnight Massacre. I'm telling you, you guys know this for a fact. There would be websites out there breaking down those prospects, and they would be applauded by certain writers. First of all, they're rebuilding. Everybody loves rebuilding in the media. Second, they're bringing in prospects, low cost. Who cares if it's Tom Seaver? (laughs) Tom Seaver for Don Sutton. You don't need another great pitcher uh, or a very good pitcher. I think Don Sutton Hall of Famer. I, I, you know, I think he's a notch below Seaver, but be that as it may. So hopefully I gave you something to think about. Uh, hopefully you enjoy your Labor Day weekend, nice holiday weekend coming up. And I promise you, I know that the Mets are in this pennant race or this fake pennant race. And I know that we've been derailed a little bit with some of the things that have been going on off the field. I got a lot of feedback about our Dom Smith show, and I appreciate Good, bad, negative, hatred, whatever, or indifferent. I appreciate you guys listening and hope you continue to listen. Uh, But we'll get into the ownership situation because I think it's something that we definitely want to talk about because it's going to apply to the future of the Mets. We'll see. I mean, with the way the pitching staff is, the Mets just don't feel like a team that can consistently win and, and at least get to 500, which I would think is what you need to do to sneak into that final. It's like the NBA now. Is it the eighth seed that they have? I mean, they're a couple of games out. But uh, we'll continue to keep an eye on that. And if the Mets make the postseason, even in this fake uh, COVID pandemic season, we will talk about it and we'll have fun with it. Because it was, a I don't know about you, but yesterday's game, that game on uh, on yesterday night was fun. You know, I listened to some of it on the radio. I was in the car during the afternoon. Had a chance to catch the final couple innings. 
got pumped up for J.D. Davis's home run. Definitely got pumped up for Pete Alonso's home run. And uh, definitely enjoying having this show the day after and having this conversation. What a nice way to tie the bow on what I planned on doing, which was a Tom Seaver tribute. I'm, I'm probably the last one, but I wanted to do it in the way that I thought made sense and made it, it represented Seaver and and my standing as a 43-year-old who didn't watch him play well. So I hope I did that. So anyway, I want to thank Rich Mancuso for joining us today. Jimmy Qualls, although it was a long time ago, I had a chance to catch up with him back about eight years ago after Johan Santana's no-hitter. And I want to thank Greg Prince of Faith and Fear and Flushing. So continue to check all those guys out. Of course, you can check me out all the time at thetalkingmetspodcast.com. You can send me a tweet at Mike Silva Media. You can get the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. And if you want to send me a note, Mike Silva at TalkingMetsPodcast.com. No G, Mike Silva at TalkingMetsPodcast.com. Enjoy the rest of the weekend. Enjoy your Labor Day. End of the summer's here. Falls upon us, so baseball's getting into the stretch drive. Until next time, be well. Take care, everybody. You sent the game-winning email at the buzzer, avoiding a 4.55 meeting on everyone's calendar. How did you do it? I got a huge assist from Grammarly, an AI writing partner that helped me make my point. 96% of Grammarly users say that it helps them craft more impactful writing. Would you agree? Grammarly helped adjust my tone to navigate tough work conversations. And it works everywhere I write, so I can quickly communicate effectively. Your teammate used Grammarly to summarize an important document, making a three-pointer. How did he do it? It only took one click. When everyone uses Grammarly, everything just makes sense. You made an incredible slam dunk to end the game. The meeting was canceled, and your team will go home champions. Go to Grammarly.com podcast to download it for free. That's Grammarly.com podcast.
Easier said, done.